pretty good. Yeah. Uh, it's so hot. <laughs> it's so hot. It's, yeah, I'm melting. It's miserable. Um, I It's so humid. My face is so sweaty. Um, I could go down to my basement, but I don't have my recordings set up there. So it's, I mean, we I could turn on central air, but I feel like I'm so stubborn about it. I'm just like, no, not until it's unbearable. And even then. You know, well, I, I don't, I can't get with air conditioning. I would rather melt than feel like I'm in a refrigerator. Me too. I think it's better to be too hot than too cold. And I think this is a Canadian thing. Like AC is not something that I'm comfortable with. Wait, are you I, Canadian? Yes, I'm so Canadian. Where are you from? I'm from like out of Toronto, like an hour and change. Like I grew okay. up in Caledon and Brampton. Uh-huh. Did you know that I'm Canadian also? I had a feeling, I had an inkling, but I didn't want to get too excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm from I'm from Hamilton, but please don't hold that against me. No, I mean, Hamilton's having a moment, right? I know. It's weird. I would never move back there. But I guess if you didn't grow up in a place, it's easier to, like, move there. Yeah. I mean, I would never – I talk to a lot of Canadians who, like, live outside of Canada. And, like, we are fiercely proud of where we're from. Mm-hmm. However, it 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 – we don't want to live there. And it's like, I don't want to, I don't know why I say that. I think I love Canada so much and I'll go back when the apocalypse is here, which is like already here, but it's just there. I don't know. I feel like everybody knows my business there and it's just never boring in the United States of America, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I do know. And like when I've thought about moving back to Canada, it's like, okay, where would I go? Because the three sort of major cities, the three cities for like coastal elites are uh, Toronto. Coast. Uh, I love coastal elites. Like, <laughs> Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. And I don't mm-hmm. want to move back to Toronto because it's just so sad. Like, it's still a nice city, but like, it's trying so hard to be New York and it's losing its identity in doing so. Um, mm-hmm. Montreal, I just. It seems too small and clicky from what I've heard. Um, I used to live there. I love Montreal. It's my favorite city in the world. Oh, I love it. You found it good? Oh, I loved it. Well, I moved there when I was 18 to go to school. Mm -hmm. So I really like discovered my identity there. Like Montreal taught me how to like be a slut, a good one. There are, are there a lot of strip clubs in Montreal? It's, I didn't even strip in Montreal. I was just. I was out freelance, like not even freelance. I was not a sex worker yet. I was just a slutty college girl who was less concerned with classes and more concerned with like what I could extract from people if I smiled (laughs) at them or if I fucked them. Uh And that was like the most fun I ever had. Montreal is so chill. No one gives a fuck in Montreal. It's hard to like be a grown ass person, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like Neverland, but I absolutely loved my time there and would move back in a heartbeat if, I don't know, I would totally move back there if I had like a ton of passive income so I didn't feel like I had to go and like hustle Montreal because, I mean, lap dances there, I think it's like $15 Canadian for a lap dance. Which is robbery. I mean, it's also a lap dance has been $20 in New York City for like 30 years. Like for my entire life, a lap dance has been the same price. However, a, la- a, a cup of coffee was like 50 mm-hmm. cents and now it's $5. So, yeah. you know, fuck that. But we're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, sorry. You would move back. I totally interrupted with my. No, 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 no. That's fascinating. I um don't actually know much about Montreal, so it's maybe unfair to judge it. I've mostly just heard stories from friends who had a really bad time living there. Uh, Do they speak French? No, that's probably that's probably part of the problem. You've got to try. You can't live in a city and be so entitled not to learn the language of the people who live there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why everyone leaves. Like, you've got to learn. You can't be that guy. Yeah, that's you know, true. Who shows up and is like, can you speak English to me? It's like, that's what we make fun of Americans for doing. You Absolutely. Know. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um it's funny cuz living here I don't 
want people to know I'm Canadian um, because I feel like it's seen as a weakness. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to admit weakness in this city. Um, but when I'm out of the country, I absolutely want people to think I'm Canadian <laughs> because uh, I don't want to be seen as an American abroad. Right. Well, wait, what do you mean weakness? First of all, let's not mistake kindness for weakness. <laughs> no, I don't think it's justified necessarily, but I just have this sense that like it's there's a quaintness to it. And also, I mean, I do know a lot of Canadians here and I'm not saying that. Yeah, I'm not saying that it's justified. I just have this feeling that people see it that way. And also, if you're in media, Canadian Canadian media is just really sad for the most part. It's like just so small and it's people just fighting over the smallest things. And also most of it is run by like total bullshitters. Um, and I feel like it's much harder to get work there. So I don't even want the, the stigma of that to follow me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I feel, I feel like, I feel like the quaintness of Canadian media media is like really nice and I love watching TV back home and I don't have to watch um like pharmaceutical commercials <laughs> and everyone's so polite oh I'm so sorry that's my laptop making noise did you hear that or is it me no you're um, good you're good okay um I don't know I like the quaintness of Canadian media I always really liked like heritage moments which okay, are well, like, hugely pr problematic yeah yes. but like classic also I don't know I really I have so much nostalgia for Canada, but I haven't lived there in almost 10 years. So that's probably why. I think, yeah, I mean, absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? It sure does. My mom's coming down uh, this week to visit. And one of the one things that I cannot bring back with me because I fly is toothpaste. I use um, a specific Arm & Hammer toothpaste that <laughs> does exist in the United States, but it's totally different. So I always make my mom bring me down or anybody like my best friend. I'm like, bring me toothpaste. She already knows what kind because she's been doing this for like 10 years for me. She like brings me this Arm & Hammer Extra Blanchissant toothpaste, which just means extra whitening in French because mm -hmm. everything's bilingual, all the labels. Anyway, I'm really excited to get my Canadian toothpaste. <laughs> Canadians smile more. Our smiles are brighter. Our toothpaste is better. It's a fact. <laughs> I used to have, um, I used to use this, I think it was moisturizer that, um, when I moved here, I was like looking for it when I ran out, does not mm. exist here. It's like a Neutrogena Canada exclusive joint. Um, so I had to switch and that was like <gasps> a real bummer. Wait, which one is it? Maybe I, I feel like I was a huge Neutrogena teen because of Jennifer Love Hewitt. <laughs> right. I yeah. don't remember anymore, but I've moved on. I have a new... Um, I have a new love and so I'm, I'm good. What's your moisturizer now? My moisturizer now is just CeraVe. Um, I use their day one with SPF and their night one without SPF. Oh, I don't even know who they are. I'm trying to get onto skincare. I They're really They're just like am. a drugstore brand. Um, nice. That's the only, I, I don't even go to Sephora. You don't like have to. Yeah. No, it, you really don't have to. Yeah. That impulse aisle at Sephora is like criminal. It is, but they make you wait in a maze. I like, know. It's like, four, it's like it's so long, and there's so many things that are all under fourteen ninety nine, and you just think, "Oh, I'll just pick up some of these," and then suddenly, like your bill is two hundred dollars more. <laughs> it's brilliant. I know. It's like at grocery stores when they have candy next to the cash register and like you have kids with you so like mm -hmm. I remember there were grocery stores in Hamilton growing up where they had like no candy checkout lines so like you your children wouldn't be like give me a Kit Kat mom give me a Kit Kat give me a coffee crisp coffee crisp I do love a coffee crisp see there's so many things we miss about Canada so many good things yeah yeah um like Frutella. Remember Frutella's? The I candy? Do. I do. Or Smarties? Smarties. So Americans, for those Americans listening, um, what you call Smarties, we call Rockets. And yes. you don't have Smarties here because I don't think, it's like a Cadbury thing, I think. Uh, I don't think mm -hmm. they really sell a lot of stuff in the States. 
So basically, Smarties are just M&Ms, but I swear that the coating has a flavor. Smarties coat flavor coating is sweeter and thinner. Yes, yes. And it melts in your mouth in a much more romantic way than an (laughs) M&M. And you have to eat the red ones last. Oh, you do? I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. So, so many, so many things we have. Um, Also, you know, all the healthcare and stuff is pretty good, too. Oh, I'm so into that. Yeah. The lack of guns is nice. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of reasons to live in Canada. Um, I think I, I I haven't reached the point where I'm like, I can't tolerate living in the U.S. Um, and so I, I'm going to move back despite not wanting to. And I honestly don't see myself reaching that point anytime soon. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Hi, everyone. It's time for another one of these where we talk about awesome things that people we know are working on or have produced. Today, I am joined by Vincent Toops to discuss a really cool game called Death of the Corpse Wizard. Hello. Hi. How did you, how did you like come to producing this game? It's a, it's a sort of like a sad story. I was working for a startup and living in uh, Strasbourg, France, and it was like overwork and not getting compensated enough and disorder. So it was this very negative experience. And then my wife was living with me in France and she was super depressed and hated it. And so she had gone back to the United States to start looking for someplace for us to live. So living by myself in France, I started to design a video game. And because I guess I was in such like a negative place in my life, this theme of a character that inevitably dies at the end of every play of the game kind of came to me. And then uh, I borrowed from one of my favorite games, which is Sharon the Wanderer. And I thought the mechanics of that game were really neat, uh, especially towards the end, if you've ever played the game. As you get deeper into the game, the sort of RPG elements of the, of the game design fall away, and it really becomes about how you spatially relate to the monsters. So I, I produced this sort of, uh, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, game that tries to capture that strategic element of play that I saw in Sharon the Wanderer. That's the short version of the story. What I love about this game is that it distills a lot of the things that I like about the roguelike genre, which for people who don't know is sort of this this genre of a game where you play through different runs. And rather than trying to beat the whole game, maybe there is an end point, but most of the time you don't get there. You sort of, um, it's, it's maybe semi-luck based, but also skill based. Um, and often those games are turn-based as well. And one of my favorite things about them is the maneuvering, like you talk about, um, sort of the waiting out for monsters to come to you or like the, the thinking spatially. I love that all of the sort of different abilities that you have in this game are based around movement and timing. So they either push things back or they, you know, you build columns to sort of redirect monsters. And what's really cool about that is there's only one resource. There's no equipment. Basically, your one resource is your health. And that's what you use to cast spells. Um, And there's sort of this trade off of like, do I cast a spell to provide me some protection, but that's also going to cost my health. So there's none of the complex resource management that can bog down a lot of these games. Yeah, I really wanted to make something that was as tight of a representation of what I really like about those traditional turn-based roguelikes with all of the extraneous material removed. Part of that was that I like minimalism, but it's also that I'm a small developer. I did most of the design and programming work on this project. I worked with two other people. My brother did some music for the game, but we're a very small team. We're not professional game designers, so that minimalism also helped us finish the product. I I think it turned out well. Yeah, and I love that, you know, in some of these roguelikes, there is an endpoint to get to. But for me, that can be kind of stressful because, like, I almost know I'm never going to get there. And I like that this is basically a score attack game. It's kind of in that old school kind of like traditional just how long can you last sort of arcade thing. It's a single screen. And so it's like very like you can conceptualize the space really well. And it has a frankly banging background track. Like, it's really great. 
Um, and there's also like a little, you know, a little bit of background details that you can dig into when you go through the the menu. There's sort of this little backstory, which I kind of like. It's just like a hint of what's happening and also just the flavor of, um, you know, it's not like a typical like I'm a wizard who casts fireballs and stuff. It's like there are different like body parts and kind of arcane items that you use to do things. It's a very distinctive kind of atmosphere. You know, it's funny you mentioned the the little story teaser in the menu there, because the original idea was to, as a sort of a joke about contrast, to take this really minimalist game and, and like load it down with this maximalist lore. And I wrote hundreds of pages of, of <laughs> weird, weird lore and a whole like novella, which is a detective story that takes place a hundred years after, which is only <laughs> tangentially related to the to the thing and I in in a few versions back of the game you could pick up pieces of paper and fill in that detective story and ultimately I I didn't feel like it was working um but if if people get interested in the death of the corpse wizard I'm considering bringing that stuff back either as supplemental material on the internet or or as pickups in the game because it was something I really liked but on the other hand I really wanted to get the game out and I just didn't want to wait yeah, I mean, I feel like that stuff is really cool as like Arcana that sits alongside games. And one of my favorite things about older arcade games and um, older console games is they do, they have this very minimalist style and you sort of have to use your imagination, but then they have in the instruction manuals um, often just this yes. dense backstory. And I really love that idea for this. Too. You know, I was literally thinking of the Star Control 1 instruction manual when I was writing the backstory for Corpse Wizard because... Uh, it had forever. It had this huge history for this game, which was basically nothing but a two-player dogfighting game and an incomprehensible strategy game. And I really loved the idea that there was all this art and all this uh, lore and all this back material for something which you would never see in the gameplay. And I really wanted to reproduce that, and, and hopefully I'll have a chance to. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, so... Um, if people are are excited about this game, and I think they should be, it's a really cool um, little kind of like low pressure, but you can sort of dig into it as much as, as you want, sort of uh, gameplay style. Uh, where can they get it? It's uh, We're on itch.io. Uh, it was on the iOS app store, and it might be by the time we run this ad. It is. And you can also get it on Google Play. Great. Yeah. And so, yeah, that link is featurecreeps.itch.io. That link is also in the show notes. So you can go ahead and click on that. Um, it's a dollar or more. And for a game that is uh, a fun little uh, coffee break arena roguelike game, I think it is well worth that. Um, and you should all go and check it out. Thanks, Merit. Thank you, Vincent. What 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 was it like when you first moved to New York? What was like the first five days like for you? Well, the thing about moving to New York is that I had spent a lot of time here already. Mm -hmm. Like I had stayed here for like a week or two at a time um, for like a few years. So it wasn't just like a total like step off the bus, like fresh from uh, from small town Ontario kind of experience. <laughs> I was very much like I'm home now because like this is. I've wanted to live here for so long and I've spent so much time here. Um, mm. I did have kind of a funny moving to New York first night where the place I was supposed to move into um, turned out to be full of garbage um, because it had <laughs> been previously lived in by an old woman with dementia. Um, Very sad. She passed away yeah. and the apartment hadn't been cleaned. Um, so it had a smell to it, I will say. And when I say filled with garbage, I don't mean there was a lot of garbage everywhere. I mean, you were wading through trash. Oh. And I was like, well, um, I can, I can slum. I can take a lot of things. This is a little beyond for me. Um, so I did have to leave my cat there overnight, which I felt terrible about. I think she was totally fine. Um, she hunted mice and bugs, I think. And then I stayed at a friend's house, which was one of the most gorgeous apartments I've ever seen because um, uh, he and his girlfriend were staying at her house that night. And I was just like, this is my goal now is to live like this. And that hasn't come true yet. But 
I'm still <laughs> holding out for just obscene wealth, the kind of wealth that you just like, maybe at some point you overshoot feeling guilty about having money. And then you just are like, no, I deserve this. And then you become, then your soul is um, just excavated from your body. Um, yeah. But it's worth it to have a really nice apartment. It really is. Yeah, we're all just like chipping away for years. So it looks like we're an overnight success. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess I guess I'm here for it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were your first five days in New York like? Oh, well, so I just celebrated my seven year New York anniversary like a oh, couple congrats. of days ago. Yeah. And it was it was this hot out. It was so hot. It was 35 degrees Celsius with a 98% humidex. Oh, just to get real Canadian on the uh, the description of the weather. <laughs> and uh, I moved into a shoebox sublet from a friend of mine who was out traveling for the summer. And, and uh, I didn't I never liked AC. So I kept removing the AC unit or something. Oh, you know what? The AC was not installed correctly. Mm. So every time I would install it, my landlord would see it hanging out the window. And I didn't know that you could kill people doing this. So he kept coming. <laughs> yeah, he kept coming into my room and removing it. So every time I got home from work and I was working at one of the worst strip clubs ever and it was not fun. I was not happy there. It wasn't like a great club experience. It was like the, probably like the lowest point of my stripper career. There's many of low points, but that was one of them. And I would just remember like crying into an oscillating fan. Like just like the tears kind of like streaming down my face and the fan trying to cool me off. I watched Steel Magnolias. I drank alone and I tried <laughs> financial domination on Skype and it, it did not work. It was like doing financial domination on Skype in a sauna that was also a steam room with like, and I was such an amateur that I didn't know what I was doing and it was terrible and exhausting. And I, um, and all the money I made, he took half of it back after the session. It was terrible. (laughs) I really hated New York. I did. I I don't know why I moved here. I thought I was going to come here and get rich really fast. Someone (laughs) told me that. And, um, I didn't cause they wouldn't even hire me at the, like the top clubs. I like wasn't cute enough or something. I don't know. And made, might've been my lesbian haircut, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was working at the shittiest clubs for like three years in this town and, um, humble beginnings, man. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so awful. I can't believe I'm still here. I mean, when did it turn around for you? I- I mean, I'm still waiting for it to turn. No, I'm just kidding. It's when did it turn around? I I think I just dis- I kept doing visa runs and running around and mm-hmm. like traveling and going to Europe, going, going everywhere. And But I met this girl and she was really cute and I just kept wanting to hang out with her. And she's my wife now. <gasps> so she works here and she lives here and she's a she's a baller lady who does you know, a more, uh, she works, she works here. She works in New York. Her job's here. So she's here and I'm here with her. So we're together happily ever after in our 200 square foot house. That's beautiful. And I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause otherwise I don't know what would have happened. Otherwise I probably would have like what I love about the life of built for myself is that I can go anywhere and do this job. You know, you just need heels and some G string and a G string and you're like ready to work. Mm-hmm. So I've had the privilege to do that anywhere. But staying in New York has inspired me to really try extremely hard at what I want to do, which is also comedy and also drawing and making art. And New York really makes you work extremely hard. So I do. And it's cool. I'm really happy. I'm really yeah. happy with all the people made me do mm-hmm. even great. if I'm not happy about it at the time <laughs> you know yeah well do you want to talk about some of your books and work because I forget when I came across it but it's like I love it so much like I love your um your cartoons and like I haven't actually read uh any of your books but you have like a bunch right I do yeah so my first book was the beaver show which is basically the memoir of a baby stripper. Mm-hmm. Baby stripper is, I guess, a problematic term because it's infantilizing <laughs> women, but that is what we call each other 
you know, rookies, basically. So my first year as a stripper, I started stripping in Australia. And I was just traveling around Australia and then traveling around the States. And I danced in Canada, too. So then I wrote this book, this memoir. Mm -hmm. And because I was always a writer. And then stripping was the only thing anybody wanted to read about. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the only interesting part of my life. The rest of me is maybe like not that interesting. (laughs) So I write about stripping. I wrote this book. No one cared. No one gave a shit. Um, I tried to get an agent and it was like such a shitty experience trying so hard to be liked by people who never respond to you. Yeah. Uh, It's like an awful experience. So I self-published it and I'm, it's extremely problematic and I'm proud I did it. And it's definitely the story of who I was and how I felt at 23 Mm -hmm. years old. And uh, when I had to reread it in a sound booth, last summer i was like oh my god jacqueline (laughs) (laughs) you have like so much growing to do and i've done a lot of growing since then anyway though the beaver show is just like this fun slutty story of a young woman figuring out like what is sex work and what role you want to play in Mm -hmm. it and how you engage with it and having fun with it and testing your boundaries so anyway i wrote that book And then I uh, was trying to get it published. Nobody cared. And meanwhile, I just started drawing. I just started drawing quotes of things people had said Mm -hmm. at the club. And that blossomed into single panel comics. And then I did my second book, which is Striptastic, which is like an illustrated anthology of like stripper fun things and maybe some less fun things. But I like to focus on me, on elevating these women. I think a lot of people do lots of great storytelling about some of the more serious challenges and mm-hmm. their stories are super important. But if you ever met me, my personality is like, you know, I'm like Rose from the golden girls. You know, what I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm like a bit of an airhead, but I mean, well, so, um, so yeah, I've just been kind of telling my stories in all these different media, which is really fun, you know, stand-up comedy, drawing, watercolor, words. It's just storytelling in all these different ways because I get bored so easily. So who knows what's next? I really want to paint on velvet. Mm. That's my next. And I want to make a TV show. Two totally different things that I plan on doing. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm a dreamer. I'll, <laughs> I want to do everything. <laughs> I love that though. I love, um, cause I feel like I'm kind of the same way of just like, I have jumped around so much that, um, you know, it's like kind of, I'm kind of a dilettante. Um, mm-hmm. and I guess that term is maybe a little condescending, but I kind of like it. Um, I guess I've settled more into writing recently, but like, I don't know. There's it's, I, I admire people who specialize but that's never been me. I've always found it really difficult. Oh, I love people who specialize. Have you ever seen Jiro Dreams of Sushi? No, documentary, but, I, I, but I have heard of it. Yeah. It's like everything that I could never identify with. He spent every day of his working life and he's 80 something years old perfecting the art of sushi. Of like of like the perfect rice recipe and like how to make octopus tender enough so that it melts in your mouth, but it still maintains its like original flavor or something. Like he's just every single day fixating on like minutia to make something better. And I'm like, this is beautiful. And I would go crazy if I had to do that. I like to do everything imperfectly and maybe twice. And then I'm on to something else. <laughs> I don't know if that's I don't know if that's good, but it's like I'll just like, you know, there's oil painters. I'm like, here's a finger painting. This is my vibe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? So what about the velvet stuff attracts you? I love, okay. So velvet painting is amazing because it's just gorgeous. And like this, the subjects that people were painting back in, I think it was like the late sixties that velvet painting was really having its moment Um, was just really fun. But the idea of velvet painting is you're starting with black and you're adding light whereas Mm. when you're painting on a white paper the default is white and you're adding darkness but when you're and what i'm inspired by is strippers always like my favorite place to find inspiration is the strip club so when you're in there it's totally dark and these neon lights illuminate these gorgeous bodies of all 
like, you know, these different women from all over the world and mm-hmm. like, and they light them in like pink and blue and red. So it's just super inspiring and exactly like, I think it would translate really well onto velvet, but I haven't even done it yet. So I'm just like, this is just an idea. Like I've been painting on black paper mm-hmm. with acrylic paint. That's really fun. But, um, I'm just moving right now. So I've had to like put away, I'm also like, you know, when like you love what you do and, and you turn it into a career and like your hobby becomes monetized and it's rad, but then it also takes a bit of the fun out of it. So for yeah. the past two months, I'm just like, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to hang out with my friends and I'm going to be a stripper. So for the past two months, all I've been doing is hanging out with friends and making money. And I'm so happy. It's like the old days. Like I don't write, I don't draw, <laughs> I don't do anything <laughs> creative. I just, I just like do what I have to do to like take care of business and like be mm-hmm. a friend. And it's so chill and I'm so happy. I have a great tan. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, a great tan for me is still not tan. Um, cause I'm really pale, but, uh, it's been nice to take a break from art, but when I move, which is happening shortly, I, uh, I'm going to have a studio and I'm going to stretch some velvet canvases and, <laughs> Who knows what? Do some yoni painting. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cover your. I've always. There was this woman. Actually, this is Canadian television. This is a hundred percent like TVO documentary from the late nineties. This woman would remember those big exercise balls. I guess they're still a thing. Mm-hmm. She would she would drape a canvas over an exercise ball and she would paint her body. And sit on the exercise ball in different positions and would just make art with her, with her body. Oh. Yeah. And like a very, and very graphically, like she would really get into the folds and <laughs> sit on this exercise ball. And I just remember being like, that's disgusting. Like I was a slut shamer when I was a kid. Yeah. I thought everybody was disgusting. And like, I thought sluts were bad. And like, I was pious. I don't even know why. Yeah. I think I'm- and then, uh, and then, uh, I thought Josephine Baker was like a bad woman because dancing is beautiful, but stripping is wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, uh, so I judged that woman on TVO for making pussy art. And now I'm like, I'm going to make some of that. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I think oh. that's like most, like if you grow up in a culture that is sending you those messages, like how can you not feel that way when you're a kid? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like some people are like, how do I overcome my horophobia? You're like, you just do. It just happens. It's like we all, nobody's like, I don't even, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's now it's different, but I, I wasn't always like pro sex work. I wasn't always, I didn't think this is what my life was going to look like. I'm so happy this is what it looks like. But, you know, someone told me the other day, she was like, yeah, I'm pro sex workers rights. Or somebody was trying to be like, yeah, this woman is amazing. She's pro ho. And I was like, that's great. And she immediately said it, but I wasn't always like, and it wasn't in a bad way. It was just like, yeah, I had to get to this realization. I had to get here. I had to do some work. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to talk about that because we all have to do some work to figure out where we are. We're always doing work. You know, I think sometimes there's so much pressure to have your politics all perfect and like vacuum packed, ready to go right now. And you're like, that's not how it works though. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, no, not at all. That's like a nice idea, but on the ground, it rarely goes that way. What did you think about sluts when you were a kid? Oh wow, um, I think I was basically the same as you. It wasn't <laughs> yeah. so like the thing that um that um turned like changed my mind on sex work was taking a class in college on sex work which was really incredible. Uh, yeah, it was like, actually, I was, um, I was like doing a year abroad. And it was in England. And they had this professor, and I don't know, like what her current, like, what this sort of current going opinion of her is. Um, mm-hmm. But she, yeah, we like read all kinds of stuff. Um, we read like, yeah, like just research, but then also just like, um this really great book. I think it was called sex work now. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was really amazing. We've read a lot of like, uh, Laura Agustin and I'm not really sure what the opinion of her these days either is, but, uh, yeah, it was like great. And we also read because it was in England, we read like all of just the worst people 
Um, so like, you know, Julie Bindle at all and, uh, mm-hmm. and sort of like discuss like, okay, well, where are these people coming from? And like, what is this about? And also like we talked about and like read about all of the, um, the like schemes to like, like they all England and everything in England is the scheme to tackle a problem. <laughs> like that's the way they talk about everything. And mm. there are, th- and also they call clients or like where we would say Johns, they say curb mm-hmm. crawlers. Um, a curb crawler. Yeah. It's like, so, oh, that's so cute and not cute, cute yeah. at the same time. <laughs> but there are like all kinds of awful things in England that I hadn't, heard of going on in the states and i think some of them actually do but like things like communities just like patrolling neighborhoods all night and like just stopping people from doing street sex work basically like getting in their way um or like things like the whole john school thing um i first heard Mm -hmm. about that in england where like it's like oh well we don't want you know it's selling isn't the problem it's the demand that's the problem. So we'll re- we'll try and rehabilitate everyone. We'll we'll try and cure these poor women of the idea that they have to do this, um, and that they can get a real job. And then these men will tell them that they have a problem, and if they don't go through this like rehabilitation program, we'll publish their names in the newspaper. Oh my god, that sounds like it must help so many people, right? Yeah. <laughs> They must be saving so many lives and making so many marriages stronger, and they must be empowering so many women. I know. With li- Sorry, this is. I don't know if my sarcasm is being it's coming right through. Now, but, like, <laughs> <laughs> wow! Like, what do they like with these people who do this work? Like, I understand that. Like, you're like you obviously something happened. Like, you have your life. You know, you have your ideas. You want to help people. You have your own little savior complex. But like, what is what does success look like to these people who are anti-sex work? Like, what does it look like? Like, the man goes home and, like, fucks his wife missionary style. And, like, they all come at the same time. And then they eat a piece of cake together. Like, what does it <laughs> look like? You know? Like, and then, like, what does it look like for, like, a, an allegedly rehabilitated, quote-unquote, like, rehabilitated former sex worker? Like, is she taking her skills and is she sitting at a desk, like, answering phones for a former client? Like, what does her success story look like to these people who want us to just stop what we're doing? You know, I'm sorry, I'm just asking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think. What does your anti-sex utopia look like? I mean, yeah, I think it just looks like, you know, having like a straight job, but like a very poor paying straight service job, probably. And like none of these people's analyses um, think about capitalism at all they don't have an economic analysis they're like coming from this structural structuralism which is just like entirely focused around this um concept of like the only thing that matters basically is like um is patriarchy and you know i think we sort of thought for a while that those kinds of singular approaches had been sort of dismantled in like the seventies, but uh, no, no, they're still kicking and they still are just like, they don't know what like economic materialism is. They don't know what capitalism is. They don't know what like labor is um, other than the fact that they know that sex work isn't real work. Um, But like, it's just treating people as if they're, there's something wrong with them and that's why they're doing this. There's no sense that like anyone is capable of making decisions within a shitty system. Um, I mean, you, I'm mostly just talking to listeners cause like this is all stuff that you obviously know. Mm-hmm. No, no. It's like, it's yeah. Like people just, they're like, no, you need to own a mediocre paycheck just like I do from yeah. somebody else. Well, I I think some of these people don't don't have mediocre paychecks. They have pretty big columnist paychecks. Right. Well, so my question is like what? Well, some people are like, wow, like, what is it like doing this job? Or they ask like kind of like dumb open ended questions that are just sort of revealing about themselves. But I'm like, have you had other jobs? Like, have you had a job? Like, they suck. Like, they are terrible. Yeah. Like, (laughs) Like, have you had have you had a job that? wasn't like 
writing about how terrible other people's jobs are? Like, have you had uh, like a, a minimum well, wage service job, work job? That. Have you had done like yeah. physical labor? Have you been a janitor? Have you done any of these things? And like, I think a lot of people who have can way more easily make that connection when it's presented to them. Yeah. And the only reason, the only way they've had that job is some sort of like class jumping. Like you did that job when you were a kid or whatever, like you did, you didn't do this because a lot of people don't get to leave these jobs. Like, let's say you're doing some sort of service job. You might have to do that for your whole life. There's nothing wrong with that. You're working hard. You're, you're supporting your family. Like, but when people like judge you for just doing a job that doesn't like match their idea of what class you think you belong to, mm-hmm. that's when it gets like it really shows people's true colors of how like classes they are. I don't know. All I want to do is talk about classism. <laughs> like what was wait, what were some of your what were some of your straight jobs when you were a Canadian teenager? Did you have any? I did have a couple. Um I worked uh I did retail. I worked at a um toys and game store which sounds really fun but the people who own stores like that I don't know if they have if they're pleasant when they open the business but like something about it erodes their humanity I had this really horrible boss who was just like just a fucking asshole and it sucked it was like a really shitty job he would like make us I don't know how he did this i guess I was too young to like realize that it was pretty illegal. He would make us stay behind after work to play board games, to learn them, to be able to, to sell them to people. And it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Playing board games for work. That's not bad. It was unpaid. Um, he just forced us to like come into the closed store and like play board games for like an hour or two. Um, and we didn't get paid for it. And I also worked at a Tim Hortons. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I, I worked the night shift at a very tiny Tim Hortons just off the QEW, which is, for Americans, a major highway that um, connects Hamilton to Toronto and a lot of other places. QEW stands for Queen Elizabeth Way um, because we're mm-hmm. we're quaint in that respect. Um, but yeah, I worked solo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I worked solo night shift in this tiny drive through Tim Hortons. Like the, the door was locked at night. So I, we only took drive through and I was the only one there. And the only reason that it was a 24 hour store was that it was cheaper for them to pay someone minimum wage to just stay all night than it was to hire someone to come in to clean. So they, we made like no money overnight. Um, because oh you'd occasionally yeah. just get like, I mean, you just got like a lot of weirdos um, who would sometimes tip really well if they were drunk, which was upsetting that they were driving. Um, But it was bad. And so, you know, I did things that people on minimum wage do, which is um, slack and steal, which isn't a judgment. It's just like you're not being paid enough to not do those things. And we, we would just throw out day olds every day. And so sometimes I would have friends come and just like give them to them. Sometimes I would just take stuff home. Like I stole bagels all the time. And like, I didn't think of it as stealing because we were throwing them out. But like my manager came one day and was like, you can't take that because if you take things that we're throwing away, you'll start to think it's okay to take things that we're not getting rid of. And I was just like, oh my God, your, your manager had to explain this to you. My thought process was like, okay, well, first of all, I already am stealing things that you're not throwing away, but like, it's not because of that. It's just because like, you're not paying me enough to not do that. And like, no one is watching me. I guess there is a security camera, but if you want to fire me and find another night shift person, like be my guest. Oh my gosh. I like, yeah, I worked at the second cup, so I can relate to all of what you're saying. Um, <laughs> for Americans, second cup is like the Canadian version of Starbucks, but worse. It's so bad. It's very it's, bad. It's, it's like, but it's like it's, on the level, it's like presented as like, they've especially tried to like make it more upscale lately. It's like the, the hierarchy, the economic hierarchy of coffee shops and the way you can tell how gentrified a neighborhood is in Toronto. Starbucks is obviously at the high end and that sort of marks the beginning because they do their research very thoroughly um, where they place stores. It goes Starbucks, Second Cup, 
Tim Hortons, although they've tried to class things up lately too, and then coffee time. Oh my God, coffee time. A friend once told me that if there's a coffee time in a neighborhood, that's how you know that there are still people of color who live there because like it or like poor people or like any like marginalized people because the Starbucks haven't like come in and pushed them all out, like pushed all the coffee times out and just like started that wave um, Mm -hmm. of gentrification. So what was the second cup was terrible. Yeah. Second cup was awful. And um, I was, it was in the mall. It was in which the mall? second cup. Which mall? In, this was in Ottawa. I was living in Ottawa. Okay. I was like seven, 16 or 17. And I hated coffee at the time. So I would always make myself caramel macchiatos every day. So <laughs> I put on, I put on like 15 pounds working at second cup and this old couple would come into the mall. It was not, it was more like a strip mall. It wasn't like a classy mall. Yeah. So this old couple would always come in and buy one cup of coffee and a cup of hot water and they would split the cuff. They would water down the coffee so they could each have a cup of coffee because they were trying to cut on costs. That's and then maybe the most desperately sad thing I have ever heard. Yeah. And then my manager was there that day, the owner, and she said, she tried charging them for the cup of hot water and the couple was like really upset. She's like, no, you don't get to dilute my coffee. And like stretch my money further. Like she was all about like, you're trying to exploit me. You're trying to like cut a corner by buying this like coffee and getting a cup of hot water for free. And just being, telling that couple that they had to give me another dollar for the cup of hot water when they had been doing this for years to save money and still have their luxury that is a cup of coffee out. I was like, this is disgusting. I hate you. Well, just pe- like nickel and diming people who are clearly just trying to enjoy a cup of coffee together. I was like, you're just, this is, I don't want to be part of this. Well, people like that will be first against the wall. So I take <laughs> comfort in that. <laughs> but um, yeah. that's the worst. Yeah, but I ate a lot of white chocolate raspberry scones, and those are still amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, straight jobs are, like, they, they really are formative and like, learning what is labor and learning how people choose to spend their money and what they can spend their money on and what is a luxury and what is a necessity and, like, how people run their business. Like, I really want to run a strip club one day, and I'm, like, I, I think all the time about how I would want to run it ethically and supportive of the people working there and also fun and like it's it's not that hard mm-hmm. apart from like getting the permit apart from paying off bikers so like people don't kill you um it's really not hard you just have to like know that like you will make more money if your employees or independent contractors are happy right and like people like don't and like people pay millions of dollars to consultants to tell me how can we like optimize our employee output or whatever, you know? And they're like, we'll just feed them, make them happier, let them work less, fewer hours. They're like, no, we don't like that answer, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's just, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's why I love working for myself. But because, see, I just remembering those moments of like having these terrible jobs that paid six eighty five an hour of getting sexually harassed while I was like, cleaning off steak knives from tables this is at the keg another canadian treasure Woof. next you're gonna tell me you worked at kelsey's i oh i wish i could tell you i worked at kelsey's no i had such a canadian childhood i was also a snowboard instructor (laughs) um yeah it's like my secret power i'm actually not a bad snowboarder um because that's how we that's how you finance your hobby is you teach that's Mm -hmm. how you do it um what are my other Canadian jobs? Oh, I worked at a petting zoo doing <laughs> face paint at a family farm in Ontario. That was a terrible job. Um, but I got unlimited carnation hot chocolate, which is still Ooh, delicious. Yeah, that's good. What were your most requested um, face paints? You know, I don't remember. I just remember being really bad at it. Like, I, I'm not like... I'm an artist. I know you're not supposed to like blame your tools for why you're terrible at your job. But mm-hmm. like, do you remember these face paint crayons that were like in a plastic sheath, like yep. an exacto knife, and you would like slide them up to get the crayon to come out? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you 
Uh, so anyway, so the, you had to, and it was so cold outside because like Canada, um, that your fingers would get frostbitten. So I couldn't like move my hands properly. God. So I was like, I had frozen hands trying to paint kids faces and, um, it looked, everything looked like a Picasso, whether they asked for like a bunny rabbit or a Batman, everything just looked like impressionism <laughs> <laughs> on like a four-year-old's face. It looked so bad. Everybody was always super bummed after I finished painting their faces and, uh, yeah, I was terrible at it. It was, yeah, but it was, it was fun to just like, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know if it was actually that fun. I think I was pretty cold and miserable, but like I had a, I had a crush on like all the other teenagers. So we were all just like trying to sneak breaks. I wasn't even like a cool kid either. Like I was definitely not cool. Like I wasn't out smoking weed in the back. I was out just like trying to do everything right and get home in time for like, you know, finishing my extra credit project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Like I have like no cool stories of being a teenager. My cool stories are all from like when I decided to become a stripper and like that's where it got interesting. Otherwise I like I was a very uncool gal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that's stripping fine. makes me cool. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> I wasn't a cool teen either. No. Where did you discover your like your coolness? Like what's your currency of cool? When did you figure it out? Well, I said I wasn't a cool team, but I was in a band in my senior year of high school. And that definitely helped. That was like very much like, that was cool. Um, what was the name of your band? I refuse to say. It was so dumb. Um, oh. <laughs> I won't say it on air. Also, because then somehow people might look it up. Although it was a name that is basically unsearchable. Um, okay. It's like one of those names uh, like that were really popular in the early 2010s of just like naming your band like fuck or something. So you just oh, nice. you couldn't Google it. It was just like, hey, you know, it will really be funny if no one can find out anything about our band. <laughs> what kind of music were you like? Did you play bad? Just bad music? Yeah. Well, I might have talked about this on the show before, but um, basically there, it was a power trio for most of its life, and um, it was – I was really into 80s punk. Mm-hmm. Um, I played bass and sang. My guitarist was really into classical guitar and classic rock, and our drummer was a trained jazz drummer. So <laughs> that's one of those combos that is either going to be – fucking amazing or completely abysmal and of course it was the latter oh my god that's so many genres right there yeah it's um it's bad it's bad is what it was um but did you watch freaks and geeks i actually haven't seen it i did watch um undeclared but i haven't seen uh freaks and geeks that's like the canadian version of freaks and geeks Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, just there's a anyway, it doesn't matter. There's but there's a character who uh who is really into like the extravagance of music and that's just what those three genres mixed together sounds like is complete extravagance but in high school. So like yep. it sounds very extra. Sounds it like was... you were pretty extra in your senior year. <sighs> I was a little extra. I think I didn't really discover my coolness until grad school maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I remember a distinct moment in grad school when I, because um, I had social anxiety most of my, most of my teen years. I'm like, my, even my, from a very young age, actually. Um, and I would be afraid in my first two years of grad school to go into a coffee shop because I felt like everyone else was too cool and that they were looking at me and judging me, which of course, I think one of the key things you have to learn to deal with social anxiety is that no one cares um, about you and that you're not (laughs) special and people aren't looking at you. If anything, they're just, if you're so engrossed with yourself, they are absolutely the same. And um, so I, I sort of like, I was seeing a therapist and I start to, I started to get over that. And that's when I was just like, man, I don't fucking care. Like, it doesn't matter to me what 
I don't know, whatever, I can go anywhere I want. And that was a skill that I later developed um, for certain reasons to um, feel entitled to be anywhere. Um, Because I used to also have this very deep class shame around being in a restaurant or Mm -hmm. a hotel that I didn't feel like I was worthy to be in. But eventually I was just like, Nope, I know how to walk around with such a presence that no one will ask me like, can I help you? Or like, uh, excuse me, but this hotel is for guests only. Um, No, I can just like stride right past the front desk and go up to the elevator, which um, proved to be useful in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's when I when I discovered my coolness, I think. I'm so happy you did. Some people yeah. are still discovering theirs. Listeners out there, if you haven't discovered your coolness, that's okay. You'll get there. To. That's valid. You're, you're, you're valid. And yeah. um, you know, there are ways that you can you can get through it. Yeah. I like asking people, like, what's your what's your magic? Like, it's especially like uh, I ask, like, younger dancers and they're just getting started. I'm like, what do you think your magic is? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Like, just think about it. Think like what like what makes you like what makes your presence the cherry on top of like you know meeting people and like how do you how do you just like make it a little bit extra special and it's just like it's just a fun other way of being like what I don't know maybe this is the opposite end of like you're not special (laughs) (laughs) no I mean you are special but not in the sense that not in the sense that um yeah like you're not the object of everyone's scorn. No, it's just like what what is that cute thing that you love to do that like makes you fun to be around, you know? I don't know. Absolutely. Um Yeah. Yeah. So kind of on that note, because you were sort of recommending something there, do you want to move on to the only segment that we do on this show? Yes. Cool. Well this segment is called Get Rest. Get Rest. It's a segment where we recommend things to our listeners, and that can be anything you want. It can be a practice or a piece of media or a place or whatever. And I always leave it up to the guest as to whether you would like to go first or you would like me to go first. Well, how many things can I recommend? You can recommend theoretically as many things as you want, but um, (laughs) let's keep it under half a dozen, I would say. Okay, I'm going to do three. Three is perfect. All I know is that the number one thing that I recommend is restorative yoga. Okay, especially if you have any kind of high-stress life. Restorative yoga is basically designated nap time. Oh, my God. You go to a yoga studio, and they give you, like, two blankets and two pillows, and some beautiful person speaks to you in an ASMR voice and teaches you to breathe and they teach you how to cuddle a pillow. They're like, all right, now you're going to take your lower back and lean it against this bolster. It's so nice. It's so chill. I could not recommend more than like going to restorative yoga when you don't want to do anything because it's basically not doing anything but in a really pretty space in your athleisure. That sounds incredible. Yeah, I went this morning. It was great. <laughs> um, what else do I recommend? I recommend swimming naked in any kind of body of water. Mm. That will also like reset you. And then I also recommend um, pistachio ice cream. Ooh, yeah. Like pistachio gelato? Yeah. Actually, Van Leeuwen, I used to think Van Leeuwen was just overpriced for no reason. Mm -hmm. And then I had their vegan pistachio ice cream. I'm not vegan, but like if I don't want to embarrass myself, I should probably stay away from dairy, you know. (laughs) So I eat I eat their pistachio vegan ice cream and it is out of this world. And if you really want to go for a ride, put some raspberries on it and some Himalayan sea salt and pink peppercorns and you're going to just be the happiest kid ever. That sounds so good. Those are my wrecks. Go wreck. Go, go. What do you say? Go, go wreck yourself. <laughs> oh my God. I'm such, I mean, such, I'm like an embarrassing dad. It's important to, to like, check yourself therapy. first. The order. Don't <laughs> yeah. ever wreck yourself and then check yourself. Um, because what you're going to be checking is that you, um, 
you wrecked yourself. So you want to do it in the appropriate order. Yeah. 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 What are yours? Mine, I only have one. I usually only do one because um, I'm lazy. So mine, thank you. Mine, I'm going to recommend today getting a suit. No matter who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long (laughs) as you're suited. Um, I love that song. That that was rough. That was that was beautiful. I'm going to listen to that song. Yeah, I'm going to go listen to it. I'm going to recommend listening to that. Uh, No. Okay. So I have been looking for formal wear that fits me for like probably five years. Um, And the thing is buying off the rack is inherently flawed, right? Um, Yes. You know, the ideal with a suit especially is that it's tailored um, and then it perfectly contours to your body. But I can't afford that yet. Um, one day I will. Uh, that's, you know, hashtag goals. But um, mm-hmm. until then, you are sort of stuck picking out pieces. And the other day, I finally got there. And I actually didn't buy a full suit. What I did was I bought a pair of tuxedo pants, which just have this really lovely um, stripe down the sides. Mm-hmm. And I bought a jacket, which isn't, you know maybe strictly, I mean, I'm not wearing a tuxedo, um, just sort of half of one, but I also found a, a collared shirt that fits me perfectly, which they always tend to look like lab coats on me. I don't know if you have that experience, mm-hmm. but yeah. I found one that it fits just so well. And I pulled out, um, you know, one of my dad's old, uh, old skinny ties and I wore that all day even though it was sweltering and it was so good it was so good to just be walking around and also I didn't like do the buttons all the way up I just it was sort of just like a little loose kind of a Patty Smith thing and then by the end of the Mm -hmm. day I had just um I had just undone the tie and it was just sort of you know just hanging over the neck and it was so hot so hot but I love that but it was worth it to have someone tell me that I looked like a cross between Mia Wallace in Pulp Fiction, Winona Ryder, and Janice in Mean Girls. That was maybe the best thing anyone has ever told me. That's the most beautiful cocktail of characters. I know. It's like... Oh my God, you had a power day. That was I had a power, a power day. You, right? And you know, my dream is to wear a suit every day of my life. Uh, maybe not on Sunday. Maybe I'll wear like a, you know, a smoking jacket on Sunday or something. But mm, this mm-hmm. is this is the goal for me is to wear a suit every day and change into a full tuxedo after five because I'm not a farmer. <laughs> I love it. So, um, yeah, I recommend getting it, trying to get a suit. Like even if it's not your usual style, it's like very transformative it makes you feel it takes you out of your sort of every day I guess unless you already wear one for work but since I work from home I don't do that and so it's like it's not like it's changing into a cooler persona whereas I guess if you wore one every day changing into like other clothes would be that for you Mm -hmm. but yeah that's my rec um and that brings us to the end of the show so do you want to tell people where they can find you and your various works online? Yes, I would love to. So you can find me, Jack, Jacqueline Francis, um, on the internet as Jack the Stripper. Jack is spelled J-A-C-Q. And then the stripper. And I'm on Instagram. I'm very active on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I'm very sloppy on Twitter. So if you want like the uncensored version of my bullshit, you can follow me on Twitter. And you can subscribe to my newsletter mm-hmm. at jacklestripper.com. And you can see me performing comedy. So just check out my website and come and see me. Come come to a show. It'll be fun and sassy. Oh, and, yeah. Um, and who doesn't love some cunty comedy? I got that for you. <laughs> Would love to see you at a show. That's great. Yeah, I'll have to come sometime soon. 
Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. It was so great to have your undivided attention. You're brilliant. So I'm thank you for coming on. Honored. My pleasure. Yeah, and I'm Bye. so glad we actually got to talk because um, we haven't spoken me before. Too. So it was nice. Um, and yeah, maybe after you're you're done moving, we can hang out IRL. Oh my god, I would love that. <laughs> me too. Cool. Well, thank you again, and I hope you have a great day. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Woodland Secrets is hosted by Merrick Kay and produced and edited by me, Nick Bravo. Woodland Secrets is a part of Stay Mean, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Stay Mean at woodlandsecrets.co support. For as little as three bucks a month, you'll get access to a monthly newsletter and frequent bonus episodes of our shows. If you'd like to have a message read on the show, head to woodlandsecrets.co slash messages. You can help people find out about the show. Please mention us on Twitter. We're at Woodland Podcast and at Stay Mean Co. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>